Welcome to America's Top Rebbitzins. May this class be for Rafu Shalema, for Harav Yosef Yitzhak Ben Sima Hatzia, and also for Linda Hanna Batova Berta. If you would like to sponsor a podcast, please email us at atrebitsons at gmail.com. I'm so happy to have on today's show, Rebitzin Rivka Slanim. Rebitzin Rivka is the Associate Director at the Chabad Center for Jewish Student Life at Binghamton University in Binghamton, New York. An internationally known teacher, lecturer, and activist, she travels widely addressing the intersection of traditional Jewish observance and contemporary life. Rebison Rivka also published two books. One is called Total Immersion, a mikvah anthology, and the other one is called Bread and Fire, Jewish Women Find God in the Everyday, and it's a reader on Jewish women's spirituality. Thank you so much for being here today. Please tell us more about yourself and what you do. It's a great pleasure, Vera. Thank you. Uh, tell you about myself and what I do. Uh, my husband and I have the privilege to be the Rebbe Shluchim to Binghamton, New York since 1984. Uh, when we came to Binghamton, it was readily apparent that the most pressing concern was the huge Jewish population of Binghamton University, which at the time was not served by any organization at all, if you could believe that. Wow. At the, at the time was a 50% Jewish demographic. And, um, and that's what we've been doing. Um, and we're really quite privileged to have um, really the most spectacular uh, opportunity to meet thousands and thousands. At this point, it's tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of young people who have come through our doors and become part of our life. And uh, that's, that's what we've been doing. And Baruch Hashem, my husband and I were blessed with nine children and um, now many grandchildren, Baruch Hashem. So that's a little bit about myself. That's amazing. And it's so I can't believe that Binghamton University had such a large Jewish population. I had nobody serving them until you came. It's such like it's such a bracha that you came. So you and your husband can really, really serve the Jewish population and meet their Jewish needs. It's amazing, really. Well, we've done that. And now we've been joined by three other couples who are helping us in this endeavor. So four four couples. And we could probably use another four. A lot of work to be done. Amazing. Really, really amazing. Um, today, we would like to talk about raising children in our modern world. Many people truly find parenting to be a major challenge. Life is not the way it used to be 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. Technology has taken over our lives. Everyone has a cell phone, an iPad, a laptop, and more. Young children, teenagers, and parents included often spend more time looking at their screens and interacting with their family. In addition to technology, our morals and values are constantly changing. There doesn't seem to be a clear sense of what is right and what is wrong. In light of everything that's going on today in our upside-down world, how can we teach our children strong Jewish values? Ah, that's quite, quite a mouthful. Um, first, Vera, I think we need to disabuse ourselves of the notion that ours is the most difficult time to raise children. It's always been difficult to raise children in every single generation. Um, our, our commentators tell us that ever since um, Esau's, Esau's angel struggled with Jacob, with Yaakov, and maimed him at the sciatic nerve, um, which is very close to the, the, or the procreative gen, uh, generative organs, um, this created um, a weakness in that area that Klal Yisrael would always struggle with chinuch, with raising children. And uh, we delude ourselves if we think that our situation is the most difficult. It is a new challenge, however, but it's one that every generation has to face. 
And, uh, you know, it's interesting, sociologists tell us that it's in the words within each language that are most difficult to define in any other language that you get to understand what's unique about that culture or nationality. So I would say that one such word is the Yiddish slash Hebrew word nachas, which takes many English words to attempt a definition. Uh, those would include, but are not limited to pride, joy, pleasure, gratification, especially as felt and experienced through the accomplishment of one's loved ones, specifically one's children and grandchildren. So we have a fixation with nachas. Nachas is all we want. Nachas is why we're talking today. And uh, that tells you that that's, this has been a Jewish privilege and struggle throughout the years. My maternal grandmother grew up in Vienna. Her first language was German. I was lucky enough to be raised together with her. We actually lived upstairs of my grandparents for most of my childhood. And uh, she had all these Sprichwörter, which means like um, adages. And one of those was, wenn man hat Kinder in der Wegen, darf man lassen Leuten zufrieden. When you have children in carriages, you have to let everybody else live, meaning don't have the chutzpah to speak on, uh, you know, to pontificate and speak on this subject of raising children when you yourself have not finished raising your children. So I'm in that precarious place myself. And um, it's interesting because when my children were much younger, they'd see me take out my better outfits that they called my, um, they used to call it my, um, uh, for him, you wear a costume. Costume, yeah. <laughs> when they used to see my better clothes, they used to say, "Why are your costumes on your bed? Are you going somewhere?" And usually, it would be because I was going on a speaking engagement. And they, and then they would look at me a few times. They said this to me very quizzically. They said, "Why do people want to listen to you?" And um, that's a very fair question. And I think it's because I don't mind talking to myself in public. So anything I say from this point onward, I'm only talking to myself, and anybody else is welcome to listen in. Um, so here's a few thoughts. First, I think there's a lot of talk today about understanding our children, seeing things through their eyes, how they might be smaller people, but they're people nonetheless, etc. Um, they're different, they need to each be respected. And of course, I agree with all of that. But I beg to differ with the politically um, correct point of departure about seeing things through the eyes of children as a framework for education. In fact, as a parent, I wish it were so easy um, because I think the Jewish model is much more complex. The Jewish model of parenting um, is more challenging because it necessitates a lot of soul searching and a lot more work because raising children is really about raising yourself. Um, there's an old Yiddish expression that says, which means what the older ones chew, the younger ones will spit out. Um, in plain English, this means that our children are looking to us. We model for them. We exercise enormous power over how our children see this world. Not ultimate power, of course, especially today with so much social media, but a far greater degree than we might actually want to be accountable for, especially when they're very, very young. Uh, my maternal grandfather would often say that when it's cold outside, which is, is right now, yes. at least in the Eastern seaboard, um, when you go out of the house, 
even if you're wearing a mink coat, but if you don't have a warm undershirt, if that first layer closest to your skin is not warm, you'll still be cold. And he used this as a metaphor for chinuch, for education. When children are very young, that, that first layer is what's going to stay with them for the rest of their life. So ultimately, who they become and how they see the world and how they impact the world depends in significant measure on us. And there's a difference between being a teacher and being a parent slash mechanich or educator, because a teacher needs to simply impart specific information. An educator has to mold a child. And as parents, we are our children's first and most important influence. So first and foremost, we want to raise children to be good, ethical, upright. We want to raise them to be good Jews. And we want to raise them to be happy and healthy. But in education, unlike teaching, there is no overture that's benign. In teaching, if the teacher is ineffective, there's nothing gained, but there's no harm done. The child will simply need to amass that, length, that knowledge from some other source. But in educating and guiding, on the other hand, in being a dugmachaya, a living model, if one's words and deeds um, are not constructive, they are by definition destructive. They are deleterious. I know people don't want to hear this. We're all looking for like, you know, a magic wand. But parenting is a constant, all-encompassing role from which one gets very little of any recess ever. In essence, like I said earlier, it's about raising ourselves, evolving, hopefully always for the better, so we can meet this challenge and privilege that Hashem has granted us. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. And you're right. You're right. Right on the mark with everything you said. I love you. I love the Yiddish expressions. They're classic and they will be forever. And so true. Very true. Um, so, but kids of all ages are facing challenges and inner battles. They're struggling with learning disorders, ADHD, depression, anxiety, and a sense of feeling alone and unloved. They're facing societal pressures of looking a certain way and dressing a certain way. And peer pressure on social media is high too. Some kids are being bullied online and also at school. Life is complicated for the kids today and also for their parents who want to raise them in the right way, but are just not sure how to do it. There's so much parenting advice out there that often contradicts itself. And the one thing that we as Jews can always rely on for the correct information to keep us steady and going in the right direction is the Torah. According to Jewish tradition, what are some practical tools that parents can implement to help guide their children so that they don't succumb to peer pressure and so that they can overcome the challenges? So I'm going to betray my Chabad background and training and tell you that anything practical has to come out of Chabad. It has to come out of Chachma Bina Das. It has to come out of what we understand. So I will get more practical, but first I want to share some ideas. Okay. Before I do, I want to qualify and say that everything I'm going to talk about now uh, does not apply to physiological or psychological um, deficits or, um, or pathologies. Okay. But everything else, that sense of being unmoored and um, becoming vulnerable to all kinds of maladies and the malay of, of this generation, I think that we have to look first at what we're working against. And believe it or not, it's not social media. It's not the pedophiles. It's not the newer and more dangerous drugs and the ease with which they are available. It's not the promiscuity online or off. 
I think it's something much deeper than all of this. In other words, these are all outlets or um, they're all symptoms. They are all ill-conceived solutions that the kids are looking for, but we have to see what is really the illness. And I think, and with this, I, I, I understand Baruch Hashem, uh, you know, I, I'm in the Parsha of the very humbling Aveda of parenting. But I think that it can really all be traced back to one big idea. And that is that our big challenge as parents is that at rock bottom, every person is born with a default setting of insecurity. Why? Because essentially we are all transients. We're fleeting and ephemeral. We're here today and gone after a few tomorrows. We talk about this on Yom Kippur in very beautiful words. Somewhere in our subconsciousness, in the deepest recess of our soul, we know the world was here before us, will continue after we're gone, and that we don't really need to be here. So what's to say that we will continue to be here in the present form? And this insecurity cannot be abated and it cannot be addressed by amassing resources or by garnering fame. In fact, a strong case can be made that people in positions of great wealth or acclaim or both suffer greater insecurity because affluence rides on the rise and fall of the financial markets, fame on the ebb and flow of public opinion. One never knows when a financial tsunami will appear or when a new star will eclipse the older one's place in the constellation. So how do we begin to endow our children with a sense of security? So if you go with psychology, psychology teaches that the first line of development is the child feeling that you take absolute unabashed delight in them. You love them. You can't imagine life without them. And this is, of course, quite true and of utmost importance. But Yiddishkeit teaches, our tradition teaches, that even that is not enough. That, in the final analysis, security requires tethering yourself to something higher, something larger, something that is going nowhere, ever. And what is that something? So this all goes back to the beginning of time, before time actually, before space, before parameters, before delineation, when there's nothing but God, nothing but the endless light of God. And the Midrash tells us, Hashem had this overwhelming desire for a dwelling place in this lower realm. And of course, this raises a huge um, philosophical and mystical conundrum. Can the perfect be made perfect? Is there anything that God could desire being that he is all perfect? And the answer is, we need to distinguish between desire and need. The all perfect God has no needs. But God did desire a relationship with us and with the world and therefore created the world. And this is the most audacious idea in Jewish theology. Hashem chose to want us and therefore to need us to perfect the universe that he, she created and put at our disposal. And so when we talk to children and we imbue them with this idea that they are partners with Hashem Yisbarach and that their neshama came down to this world at this time because the world cannot be perfected without them and that Hashem is relying on us, 
it's very powerful. Now the Rambam defines that which is true as something which was, is, and will always be. So our physical bodies and existence do not fit that criteria. But to the extent that our lives are suffused with ruchnias, with spirituality, with the fulfillment of Hashem's ultimate desire, to that extent do we become part of truth, part of that which is eternal. And from that flows a sense of security that cannot be shaken. And if you think about it, that's why the Nazis were so incensed, so flamoxed by the sight of Jews being led to the crematorium singing Animamin. They could take everything away from us and still they could not denude us of our core, even as they had stripped us of everything else. So how could it be that our children in a time of such great affluence and, and, and comfort and security are floundering? And, and yet we have shown a strength throughout history that is unique to Klal Yisrael. And I think it's about this core. Now, switching back to psychology, the second line of development we're taught is to have ambitions and goals in life. And the impetus in this direction is provided by parents and additional outside influences. And to move forward in life, we're taught a child must develop an ideal of who they should be. And as the child develops and grows older, they compare where she, he is against what he, she is hoping or what is being projected upon them to achieve. And this becomes their sense of self-esteem or lack thereof. From the Jewish perspective, as outlined above, the first and foremost identity and goal, in my opinion, is for our children to feel that they must fulfill the mission for which they were brought into this world, to be a good Jew, to be a good person. And our challenge is to infuse our children with a passion towards this goal. And when they have this goal, it's something that's not going away. And it's something that each child can do in their own way. Not every child is cut out to learn a whole day or to learn in a certain way, but every child can serve this greater mission. And one last thought, something else that emerges from Hashem's desire for a physical universe of which man is the pinnacle of existence is a deep rooted sense of restlessness and the need to accomplish. Now we've already established that if not for Hashem's desire, we would be superfluous. None of us are absolutely necessary to the existence of the universe. But given Hashem's desire and the system Hashem put into place, we absolutely do have purpose. We have a mission to carry out. And this explains why you're doing this podcast. It explains why a person has a visceral need to accomplish. It explains why we might feel let down rather than elated the day after we've completed a huge project. Because we're often happier accomplishing than with the sense of mission accomplished. So think about the day after you've submitted a very complicated brief or complete a huge project or the day after our wedding. Our children have that same need. They need to be busy doing things that give them a sense of worth and accomplishment. I don't mean busy work. I don't mean shuttling them from activity to activity. I mean something that makes them feel necessary and fully needed, that they've made an authentic contribution. Like Friendship Circle is an excellent example. It's a great model. It gives children a way to help other children. Our children need to know that only they 
can bring Hashem's ultimate plan to fruition because each person, no matter who they are, is necessary to accomplishing what cannot be done by anybody else. And that, I think, is huge towards buttressing against the tide of, of challenges that we face. They all want to be happy. They don't want to be anesthetizing themselves through watching Instagram or pornography or, I mean, visiting Instagram, watching pornography, taking drugs, and, and God knows what else. They want to be happy. We, we just have to give them the tools. Right. That's so amazing. And it's so, so important, which is said, especially about everybody needs to feel like they're accomplishing their purpose, their own specific particular purpose. And it's true. Everybody's here for a particular reason. My reason for being here is different from somebody else's reason and so forth and so on. Like we all are really, really essential, even children, especially children. They're all essential, you know, their purpose. Um, I mean, there are times in parenting that require a parent to discipline a child. What are your views on discipline and what is the best way for a parent to effectively discipline their child? All right. If that is not a difficult question <laughs> and a humbling question. And uh, again, I'm, I'm going to use the same model I used to answer your last question, because I really think that we need to think about these things very, very deeply. And I, I want to be honest and say, how have I, how that I had known this, you know, when I had my first children or that um, my discipline was always done in the correct way and in the right measure, I, I you know, Honestly and sadly, I can't say that. I like to believe that. I hope that my children know we tried our best. Um, but but now it doesn't mean I shouldn't give other people the benefit of certain ideas that can, that can be guiding principles in terms of discipline. And again, I think in order to understand this, we have to understand a little bit more about what makes us tick as people, understand a little bit more about ourselves. Um, so in a wondrous Ma'amar, uh, Hasidic treatise called Klolei Chinuch Vahadrachal, the laws or the axioms of Chinuch, of education and guidance. Um, the Rebbe Rayatz, the Sixth Lubavitch Rebbe, uh, speaks about how there are four levels of our psyche, of our soul powers. Uh, there's our emotive qualities, our midot, our love, our fear, our ambition, our humility. There's our intellectual faculties, our chachma, bina, and da'at, our wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. On top, higher than that yet, is something called ratzon, will, or desire. And the most transcendent strata is called oneg, delight, or pleasure. Now, a person's intellectual faculties are qualitative and defined. They're rooted in the mind. They can be assessed. A person's emotive faculties are also able to be described and analyzed. They can be assessed. We now have IQ and EQ. But then we get into the deeper and more transcendent aspects of our psyche that we're less aware of. Pleasure, onik, and ratzon, will, these elude description and qualification they're transcendent energies, but they're all encompassing. Now, concerning ratzon will, we're taught, ein davar omed haratzon. Nothing can stand in the way of will. Or where there's a will, there's a way. Anybody who's raised children knows when children get in their mind, they want to do something. It's amazing what they can do. Concerning onek pleasure, we're taught that there's nothing deeper, there's nothing higher than the sensation of pleasure, and therefore. Everyone has an overwhelming desire to achieve pleasure. 
Now, how does this relate to education and discipline? So to understand this, we first have to understand what is meant by onen, what is meant by true pleasure. And Hasidus teaches that onig is pleasure that comes not from something outside of the self, nor can it be acquired from tasting something or winning something. That purest type of pleasure comes from being at home with the self, being at peace with who you are. Ultimate pleasure is simply being yourself and being proud of that self. And ultimate angst and anguish is having to engage in actions that are at odds with the essential self or a feeling of self-loathing, God forbid. What about willpower? Parents and teachers can get kids or adults to do anything, carrot or stick, right? Incentives or consequences. And both of these modalities can be effective for a certain amount of time. But rutzon, will, cannot last indefinitely if it's not connected to the essential onik, the pleasure of being in touch with and taking pleasure in one's essence. A lot of parents are struggling with children that seem to be disconnected and estranged from the way that they were raised, from Torah mitzvahs. So we know that the carrot and the stick are going to fall short that we have to engage the Ratzin and the Ratzin has to be connected to Onik, to that ultimate pleasure. In plain English, long-term motivation comes from doing something you love to do or want to do because it is you, because that's how you are, not something that is being foisted upon you, not something that is being superficially superimposed from the outside. So our trick is to get the children to taste of what it feels like from a very young age, to be who they really are, to understand who they really are. And I'm sure you're familiar with this um, famous little story. I think that um, Rabbi Dr. Avram Tversky, Alava Shalom, who wrote so copiously about all of these subjects, included the story in one of his earliest books. It's a story about a man who goes to the bathhouse. And he's worried because when he's completely undressed, he's worried that he may not be able to recognize who he are. He's going to look just like all the other men who are undressed. So he resolves to put a red string around his thumb of his foot. He goes into the bathhouse. When he comes out, alas, the red string is not around his thumb. But then he sees another guy who has the red string around his thumb. So he walks over to the guy and he says, I know who you are, but can you tell me who I am? And um, this has never been truer than today. A lot of it has to do with parents being afraid to be parents and thinking they have to be their kids' children, uh, friends. They have to be their cheerleaders, but not their parents. The kids are relying on us to tell them who they are, to be their parents, to be that red string. Um, and... I'd like to talk a little bit more practically, and I'll do that in our closing question. But I think it's really important to remember that the intellectual yield, the emotional health has everything to do with the will, and the will has everything to do with that ultimate level of pleasure. They need to all be engaged in a straight line. Right, right, wow. 
um, yeah, it gives us a lot to think about because then we as parents have to help our children figure out what is their ratzon that's going to lead them to the to the their own egg. Like, what do they want to do? It's really going to lead them to the ultimate pleasure, which is really their purpose in life, as we were talking about before. It's really, really, um, it's special and it's individualized and it's very unique to each child. Exactly. Yes. But there are certain things that are global, that are universal, and those are like the basics. And, yes. and those get imparted, you know, not in those like, um, okay, now we're going to sit down and we're going to talk moments. It's in all those moments where we don't realize the kids are watching us. It's in, in the way we react to things. It's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's stunningly clear that so much of it has to do with how we're acting in the day to day. It's all the quotidian aspects of life. It's so true. I totally agree. Totally. And that, which brings us to our very last question. What is the most important thing that parents should know when it comes to raising strong, resilient children who know right from wrong and who are not afraid to stand up for what they believe? So here are a few practical things in no particular order. And by no means is this comprehensive, but just a few things that come to mind. First, at the risk of repeating myself. We are our children's most important role models. Everything we do, they will do. If we hide a certain activity from them, the best we can hope for is that they will likely end up doing the same thing in hidden fashion as well. It's very humbling and it's very sobering, but it's the truth. Um, The second thing I would say is that we have a tendency as human beings to kind of think at a certain point in our life that we're stronger, we're smarter, we're more ingenious than our parents, and also to push back a little and to rebel just a little bit. So if we want, or a lot of it, so if we want a certain standard from our children, we have to model an even higher standard because something is going to get shaved off in transmission. They may go back to that higher level, let's say when they get older, but in the teen years and in the younger years. And there's this wonderful story about a woman who used to daven from a sitter where there were just a few words of the prayer on every page. And around it um, were all these commentaries, deep esoteric commentaries. And her children asked her, why are you davening from such a heavy sitter? Why are you davening from a sitter? Like in a delicate way, they were saying to her, like, you hardly read Hebrew. Why are you reading from a sitter where you certainly can't understand the deep commentary. And she said to them, because I dive in every day and I'm sure that the edges of the pages are going to get worn and they're going to tear. So I want to have a sitter where the essential words I want to say will never be torn. And I think that's a wonderful metaphor for what I'm trying to say. If we want our children to have certain standards and um, not to back down in the face of what other people are doing, we need to model an even higher level of whatever it is, you're a chamayim, et cetera, et cetera. Also, don't be afraid of owning who you are. I'll never forget when we were young, we would always tell my mother, everybody's doing this, everybody's doing that. And she would just look back at us and say, we are not everybody. <laughs> so and- true. If everybody would say to their kids, we are not everybody, they wouldn't be that everybody. That critical mass is accrued by every child talking to their parents about how everybody else is doing this and then everybody else folds and caves. Um, One of the most important things is simcha, to be happy. Our children will never be compelled by a life that is devoid of joy. But more profoundly, if you're not happy, it means that you have not found pleasure, you have not found oneg, which means 
you cannot model that and convey that to the next generation. You haven't found yourself in the larger schema. So simcha is huge. Another huge thing is honesty. I am very passionate about this. It's okay to say to our children, I made a mistake. It's never okay to lie to a child. Because if we teach our children that they cannot trust us, then who can they trust? And again, if we emerge from that point of departure that we're born with an essential insecurity, <laughs> if you can't trust your children, how are you ever going to trust anybody in life? And that you know, feeds into all the future relationships and everything else in life that needs to be done. Um, and finally, I would say the last thing is we love our children, no matter what they do, no matter who they are, we love them because they are our children, not because of their grades, not because of their extracurriculars, not because of the, mu the musical instruments they could play. We love them. We take pleasure in them. And like will and pleasure, this is transcendent, which brings us right back to the point I made earlier about security. Because if a child knows they have their parents' love no matter what, they can take that to the bank. And that love flows, of course, from Hashem's love for us, which is not contingent at what we do or don't do. It's because we are beneath the Chori Yisrael. The Baal Shem Tov said, each one of us is like an only child born to elderly parents. That's how much Hashem loves us. And from that love flows our love to our children. And when they feel that, they can connect through us to Hashem. And when they're connected to Hashem and with Hashem's help, that staves off a lot of the stuff our children are contending with today. I mean, that is so beautiful. That's so, so beautiful. And so hopeful. It gives us all hope. I really, really love what you said. Thank you. I just want to give us all a bracha that we should be able to raise our children in the right path and it should be in good health and with great joy and with the harchava, with abundance in the resources that we need. Mm -hmm. And I want, to, I want to just add one more thing. I've heard this attributed to more than one person, so I am not going to give an attribution, but it came from a very holy source. Um, somebody... Uh, wrote to their Rebbe and said, Rebbe, my child is very far from where we are as a family and where I would want them to be. And I understand that it says that the apple never falls far from the tree. So I'm writing for Tikkun. I'm heartbroken. And the Rebbe said, that is all true in normal times. But when there are very strong winds, the apple can be carried very far from the tree. So we do live in a time with very strong winds. And it's very important for us to recognize that. And for us, at the same time that we recognize our huge responsibility, to recognize that there can be things that are beyond us. And for that, we have to say to Hillam constantly and beg Hashem to give us Yata Dishmaya. But at the same time, do everything we can do when the apple is still connected to the tree before it falls, before the winds can get at it, as it's being formed, as it's growing. And Amir Hashem, Hashem should give us all great Hatzlacha in this most important mission.
And thank you, Vera, for this opportunity and lots and lots of Hatzlacha with this podcast. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rebbets and Rivka, for taking the time to join us on America's Top Rebbetsons. We really, really enjoyed having you here. And we hope that all the learning we did today is for Rafua Shalema, for Harav Yosef Yitzhak, Ben Sima Hasya, and also for Linda Hanna Batova Berta. Thank you so, so much. You're welcome.